0: Remember those days? Some of you don't have to think back that far. Some of you may be in middle school or you're in high school and you can think back just a couple of years. Some of you are in college and you can think back just a few years beyond that and you're thinking, man, I remember middle school. Some of you can't remember if you went to middle school. Some of you, when you went to middle school, it wasn't even called middle school. It wasn't called junior high. It was just, you know, you were all in that one little classroom on the prairie there. I don't know. I want you to think back. We're going back to middle school for a couple of moments here and we're going to talk about... Diagramming sentences. Does anyone remember this? Anybody remember this devil-inspired? I mean, this wonderful learning technique. Now, I know that the concepts of diagramming sentences is taught at a very early age in grade school. We've got kids in grade school, but just look at some of these words right here and see if they don't make you just shudder. Modifying, adverb, adjective, subject, verb, preposition, object of the preposition, adjective. Adjective. this, this makes me nauseous, just thinking back to these days. Um, you know, again, when I, if, you, if you're an English teacher, if you love English, if you want to be an English teacher, if you used to be an English teacher, if you made a really good grade on the English portion of the SAT, you're about to get mad at me because I'm going to totally mess this up as we talk about this. But I want you to look at this. Diagramming sentences really starts with that line at the top. Subject, verb. There's a line dividing that. And what, the, what you do when you diagram a sentence is you have a subject and a verb, and then you have all of the other components of the sentence that come out of those two things. And you can have some extensions to that line, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But really what you have is you have the sentence, the, the core foundational pieces of the sentence, the subject and the verb, and then you have the things that come off of those things to really help describe or to show the action of the verb or to, to describe the noun or the subject that's going on there. And this is to help you understand the various parts of the sentence... And so that you can understand the sentence structure, what you're dealing with there. So let's use just a a made-up sentence and see if we can actually diagram the sentence. Here's the sentence that I want us to diagram. Her very good friend is courteous. Her very good friend is courteous. So throw the next one up here. You can't read that, I know. Um, So what you have is you have friend, which is the subject. The verb is is. Courteous is kind of the predicate adjective. You can see the, the, the key down here at the bottom. Describing friend. And then her describes friend. That's the adjective to friend. Uh, also good describes friends. So that's an adjective. And then the adverb very describes good. Everybody's tracking with me. There's going to be a pop quiz on this in just a minute. Everybody's with me. Today's message was supposed to be called. Who's got your back on Friday. That message changed. And the title of today's message is how to diagram sentences. And I'm not even kidding. So we're going to spend some time. No, I'm just kidding. We're almost done with this portion. But what you see here is you see how this sentence is broken down. Now, my my son Cooper's in second grade. And in second grade, they don't yet diagram sentences, but what they do is they look at sentences and they try to determine, is there a way for us to rearrange the sentence to help it to read a little smoother? We don't change the meaning of it. We don't change the words of it, but we might change the order of some of the words in the sentence to help it read a little smoother. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical sentence here. Let's throw this sentence up. To the mall, Corey went to spend some money. Now, if you know that Corey is the name of my wife, then you understand that this is a very hypothetical situation. She would never do this. So, to the mall, Corey went to spend some money. Now, without changing any of the meaning of this sentence, we could actually rearrange the words, and and Cooper's homework may do this, to show us that Corey went to the mall to spend some money. So, what we've done without changing the meaning, because we didn't change the meaning, we changed the focus of the sentence. If we were to diagram this, what we were trying to get to is what's the subject, what's the focus of the sentence. Where does the action take place? What's describing the action? What's describing the subject? And so we understand that one of the ways that you could write this is, Corey went to the mall to spend some money. So again, didn't change the meaning. All we changed was the focus by rearranging the words. Now, when we read the Bible sometimes, we don't have that advantage because it's, it's written to us. So unless you look in a different translation... Unless you're reading the NIV and you go to find some other study tool like, you know, the New King James Version or the English Standard Version or the Message or some other translation of Scripture. A lot of times we don't have the advantage of flipping the words around. You're just kind of, what you have in front of you is what you read. And sometimes when we read it, we think it means a certain thing. and, And it probably does. But if we were able to rearrange the words, we might be able to change the focus of that sentence to help us maybe understand a little more clearly what the sentence is actually about. And so as we kind of dive in today, instead of looking at who's got your back, I want you to turn to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament. It's the seventh book of the Old Testament, seventh book of the Bible. And let me just kind of set up some context here. Judges happens between Moses and Joshua kind of leading the people of Israel, the children of Israel, out of captivity. They've been in captivity and bondage. Moses leads them out of that, set my people free. They walk across on dry land between the Red Sea, kind of waves there. They walk out on dry land. They spend some time in the desert. Joshua, his apprentice, comes into leadership. Joshua eventually leads them into the promised land, and then Joshua dies. Joshua dies, and Scripture tells us that there came a generation who did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for them, which is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, if you think about it. This is like the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Moses who did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for them. And then after that, but before we get to like the series of events in the kingdom of Israel, where we have kings, where we have like King Saul and King David, before we get there, we have this period of judges. Judges were people that God ordained, God raised up in leadership between the the leadership of Moses and Joshua, but before the leadership of the kings to help provide leadership for the people of Israel so that they could have someone to really help them determine what it was that God wanted them to do. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Judges, chapter 11. I want us to read verse 1 of Judges 11. This is what it says. Now Jephthah, everybody say Jephthah. Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Now, we started a new series a couple weeks ago called The Flip Side. We've been looking at it the entire month of April. And The Flip Side was the idea that there are two realities in some of the sentences that we read. And they are connected together by a word. Maybe it's but, maybe it's yet, maybe it's nevertheless. And then there's a reality on one side of the sentence. There's this transition word and then there's this greater reality. And we've looked for the last several weeks of trusting God through prayer. Trusting God through worship. Pastor Mark was here last week and talked to us about how to really live our lives when the efforts of our lives are coming up emptier than we think that they should when our efforts don't kind of produce the same results that they have been producing. And so trusting God in those moments and how to really respond to that. And so in this flip side series, I've given you every week that I've spoken. This is the third of the four weeks. I've given you three kind of flip side type sentences. They've been exactly the same every week. And I'm going to read them again so that you can understand the the context of the flip side. This is what we're talking about when we say these flip side sentences. The weather forecast for Saturday, not yesterday, but three or four Saturdays ago, was it called for a 30% chance of rain. But it was 75 and sunny on Saturday. The second flip side sentence would be, My work is only 17 miles from my house, yet it takes me almost one hour to get to work in the mornings. The third sentence would be, I listed my car for sale for 3200 That's not a misprint. It's not $32,000. $3,200. Nevertheless, no one has wanted to pay more than 2500 So we have two realities in each of these sentences. The forecast is one reality. The actual weather on that day is another reality with a transition word of but, yet, or nevertheless in each of these. All right. It doesn't matter that it's only 17 miles from my house. The greater reality is how long it takes me to get to work. It doesn't matter what I'm asking for my car. The greater reality is what someone wants to pay for my car. And so we've looked at these over the last few weeks. And when we, when we read Judges chapter 11, verse 1, we again come to a sentence that has two realities connected by one of these transition words. I want us to go back and read it one more time, Judges 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of the flip side sentences that we just read. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Reality. But he was the son of a prostitute. Potentially a greater reality. I want you to think about it in the context of Our culture. The context of the way that we label people. The context of the way that you and I look at each other. And I want you to look at the the, the homework that my son Cooper does. And I want to see if maybe we can rearrange the words. We're not trying to manipulate scripture. I want to reread this to see if that changes the meaning at all. What if, this is the what if translation. This is not what scripture says. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was the son of a prostitute. But he was a mighty warrior. Same words. Same words we just read. And yet by reordering those words... Without changing the meaning, we change the focus. Now, again, I don't want to manipulate Scripture. We're not doing that. But I think if we were to read Scripture the way that you and I kind of go through life, the way we look at other people, the way we think that people look at us, the way we look at ourselves, we probably think of ourselves in the context of the first way that we read Scripture and what's actually in Judges chapter 11, verse 1. And it would go something like this in your context. Yeah, he's a good guy, but fill in the blank. Yeah, she's a really great lady. We like her a lot, but fill in the blank. We had such high hopes and expectations for them, but he was a great warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. I mean, we have... The reality that he's a great warrior. And then the way that it reads here, we almost assume that the greater reality is that the fact that he is the son of a prostitute is a defining piece of his story. It's the piece that he would have to overcome to really ever accomplish anything great. It's the part of his story that you and I tend to get stuck in in our own lives. Now, I don't know your personal story, probably. But if you were to take the details of your life and you were to take some skill set, you have some talent, some passion that you have and put it in the beginning of this. And you just replace your name with Jephthah and you say, you know, Jeremy was whatever is a good skill I have or something that I'm passionate about or something that I've accomplished in my family or on my job. But and then fill in the blank with something that you feel like is an obstacle you have to overcome. He, he has this skill, but and he's, he's got that that past, you know. He's got this family history that is defining to who he is. And so you and I get stuck there. We tend to live our lives in the context of the second side of the statement, thinking and believing that it's the greater reality of our lives. And so I wrote down some examples here. You desire to be used by God, but surely he can't use someone like you. You have some hopes and dreams, but... Those came before you blew it big time. You actually have some skills and some talent and some passion to do something. But if anyone knew your family history, if they knew who your dad was or they knew what your brother had done. Maybe you have a bad family heritage. Maybe you have some mistakes in your past. Maybe it's a lack of education. Maybe it's the child out of wedlock that you had. Maybe it's the fact that you're still single. Maybe it's the fact that you had a failed marriage. Maybe it's financial ruin. Whatever it is, we sometimes tend to live our lives in the context of the second part of those sentences. Believing that in this instance, those are the greater realities and we can't escape those greater realities. But I want you to think about this. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we just looked at this sentence structure. And I want want to throw one or two more English phrases to you. And you know these. Let me just throw one or two more... English phrases to you. It's the idea of independent clauses. Anybody ever heard that? Independent clauses, independent phrases. All the students raise their hand. I love this. Everybody else is like, did we learn that? Were they teaching that when I was in school? I don't remember. Independent clauses. Here's what that means. They are two separate, distinct ideas that are not dependent on one another. So I want you to take those two things that we just read from Judges chapter 11 verse 1 and I want you to separate this two and I want you to make them two independent thoughts. Here's the first one. Jephthah was a mighty warrior. Independent. Doesn't is not contingent on anything related to the rest of the sentence. Jephthah was a mighty warrior. Period. Could have been. Second sentence, independent clause. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. Independent clause. Independent phrase, not dependent on anything else. So you have two separate, independent ideas. And here is the tension in which you and I live. And I believe where you and I struggle, and I believe many times this is where people get stuck. You and I have the ability, and we've said this since week one of this series, to decide. We have the ability to decide which is the reality and which is the greater reality. If you remember from Habakkuk a couple weeks ago when we read that passage and we talked about there were no grapes on the vine. There were no figs there. There were no sheep in the pen. There were no cattle in the fields, Yet, I will rejoice. We had the ability to choose that we would rejoice in spite of the circumstances that we saw. Pastor Mark was here last week and he talked to us about Jesus' interaction with the disciples and really with Peter and even though they had been fishing, and even though they were fishermen, and they were the, you know, kind of the experts in this field, Jesus said, throw your nets over. And Peter had the ability in that moment to choose. Do I go with my own expertise? Do I go with what I know in my head, and my heart? Or do I choose to trust him because he said so? You have the ability to choose which is the reality and which is the greater reality. Because they are both true statements. Jephthah is a mighty warrior and he's the son of a prostitute. You and I have some hopes and dreams, but we have some parts of our past we're not proud of. You and I want to be used by God, but we've made mistakes. You and I desire to have a good and healthy marriage and family for our children. We want to establish an incredible heritage and lineage. But there are some things that our our spouse and and, and we, and that's terrible English in itself right there. I don't even know how I said that. There's some things we got to work through. Two independent ideas of each other. And if we're not careful, we get so stuck in one of those that we never allow ourselves to be the mighty warrior. We never allow ourselves to chase the hopes and dreams. We never allow ourselves to be a candidate to be used by God because we are so stuck in what we've allowed to become the greater reality of our lives. Let's jump back into Judges. And I want to read the next six verses or next five verses of what we just read. Judges 11, 1 through 6. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Now let's just pause for just a second before we move on. Gilead, this is we're talking about a specific group of people within the tribes of Israel. So if you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, this is the idea that we're breaking down the children of Israel through the 12 tribes, which we we represent the, the lineage of Jacob, which is Israel. His name was changed to be Israel. So we're talking about family tribes, clans within those families, the tribes there to break these people down. And Gilead is a part of that breakdown. All right. So we're talking about a specific group of people among God's chosen Israelite Hebrew people. And so Gilead is his father. Jephthah is, is his son by this other woman. So in just a minute, as this kind of stacks up, I want you to keep that in mind. That we're talking about Gilead as the namesake of this group of people. And we want to look how that breaks down. Verse 2. And Gilead's wife, different woman than Jephthah's mom. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Think Robin Hood and his merry men here, okay? They collected around him and went out with him. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Now stop for a second. Who would the elders of Gilead be if we're talking about Gilead as the namesake, kind of the the top of this ladder, this chain of this family? Who would the elders be? Does anybody have a guess? It would be the sons of Gilead. Who are the sons of Gilead? They are the half-brothers of Jephthah. So read that verse again. It says, That when they bring war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And verse 6 says, And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. This is a scene of pure redemption. This is what in every place of hurt in your life where someone has pushed you out, you hope to relive verses 5 and 6 of Judges chapter 11. Because the half-brothers of Jephthah, who pushed him out, who said, you're, you're not, you're not full blood of us. You're not, you know, you're not a part of us. You're not a part of mom and dad. You're part of dad and this other woman. And you've got to leave here. You're, you have no value to us. You have no worth to us. And so they push him out. And then they all grow up. This band of men, this band of worthless fellows, which I love that part of the translation, this band of worthless fellows comes and gathers around Jephthah. And they began to go out and they began to fight And they began to kind of take from the rich and give to the poor. I mean, it's literally a depiction of Robin Hood almost through this story. And they go out and do this thing. And when the the people are beginning to war against them, what do they do? They look around and they go, who do we need to call on to be our leader? And they look and see that the best candidate for that is their half-brother that they pushed out years ago. And they come back to Jephthah. And they say, hey, will you come And be our leader? Will you come and help guide our armies as we fight against the enemies that come against us? I mean, this is a scene of pure redemption. It's an incredible story. An incredible story that that shows us that what we think is the greater reality is not always the greater reality. And we have the ability to choose. And I want you to think about this story. Think about Jephthah's life. What is a prostitute? That's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that out loud. What's a prostitute? You know what a prostitute is? A prostitute is someone that someone else looks at and says, You're worth this much. Your time is worth this much. You have this much value. And then what does that prostitute do? She has a son, and the half brothers of that son look at him and say, You have no value. You have no value to us. You cannot gain the value of the inheritance of our father because you're not pure blood. And they push him out. And he goes out by himself. And who rallies to him? A group of worthless fellows. The word worthless is literally translated those who have no value. So a group of no value people rally around a guy who was told by his brothers, you have no value Because you came from a woman who other people assigned her value. And here's the reality for this room this morning. Some of you sit here. And you have lived a life where someone else told you your value. Somebody put on you. You're worth this much. You can only ever attain this much. You can only ever accomplish this much. This is your value. Some of us, we came from families where we felt like, hey, our our family can only accomplish this much. Some of us thought we had pretty high dreams and aspirations. But once we got into life, we realized, man, we're fighting for all we're worth. And we felt so just kind of beaten down that we felt like our value had been removed from us. We sought love from a lot of different places only to find people pointing back at us and saying, you are unlovely and unlovable. We sought to accomplish great things and people looked at us and said, you can't do it. You can't accomplish it. And here's the truth. I would love to promise you this morning that at some point those people are going to come back and ask you for forgiveness. I would love to tell you that verses 5 and 6 of Judges 11 is going to happen in your lives and they're going to come back and say, will you come back to the family? Will you come back and pursue all that you've wanted to pursue? Will you belong to the fold again? Will you come back and be a part of us? We see value in you now. We, I would love to tell you that's going to happen, but the reality is it's probably never going to happen. Outside of a supernatural work of God in their lives and in yours, it's probably never going to happen. But in this story, I think what we see is that you have the ability to move beyond those moments. Those moments. You have the ability to live your story out of being a mighty warrior and not just your past. You have the ability to continue to pursue who you are and not just who you were or where you're from. Jephthah's story is incredible. And there's twists and turns in this story. Like if you read the full story, which takes place from Judges chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 where we read, all the way to Judges chapter 12, verse 7, I think is where it ends for the most part, or some of that that parts of his story. If you read it, there are twists and turns, and there's a crazy piece of the story about a vow he makes to God. You need to read that today if you've got nothing else going on. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. But here is, in a nutshell, the high points of the story. Jephthah comes back, and he leads the armies of his people. And he leads them against the Ammonites. He converses with the leadership of the Ammonites and he eventually leads them against the Ammonites. And guess what? They win. And then he leads them against another group of people, he leads them against the Ephraimites. And guess what? They win. And and so when you listen to this story, when you read this story, you see some incredible things that are happening. And his story is one that kind of lives throughout the history, throughout the heritage. The story of his daughter, which comes later in the story, lives through the heritage of the people of Israel and something they reenact every year because of her. And if you get all the way into the New Testament, we've been reading from the Old Testament. There's two parts to the Bible. You read in the New Testament and you get to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the faith chapter. You may have heard it referred to as the Hall of Faith. It's just this incredible chapter that references some of the most incredible faith-filled acts of all of Scripture. Hebrews 11.1, which we've referenced twice in this series, I know, talks about what is the definition of faith. Faith is, is believing what you can't see with your eyes. And then out of this chapter, we see stories raised up from Scripture. And if you're trying to figure out, where do I start reading the Bible? There's a lot of places you could jump in, but here's where you could start. Just go to Hebrews 11 and read about these people... And then go online and search those names and figure out where their story happens in the Bible. So we start out really early in Hebrews 11. And it says, by faith, Noah built an ark to overcome the unforeseen circumstances that were coming against the people of the world. What did Noah do? We know this story. Noah built an ark. And, here, and I joke about this all the time. So you may have heard this because I only have four jokes. And I tell them over and over and over. But here's the thing about Noah. Okay? Here's what happened with Noah. God said, Noah, build an ark. Noah was like, yes, I'll do it. What's an ark? He says it's a boat so that you can get in it when it rains, and Noah's like, "Awesome! What's rain? Because it had never rained at that point." So not only does he have to know how to build a boat, he's got to know—he's he, building a boat not knowing what he's trying to escape. And so Hebrews eleven elevates the story of Noah to say it was by faith that Noah did this incredible thing. He built something. He pursued the plans of God. He followed the instructions and the directions of God, not really even understanding what God was calling him to do. Later in Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham, Abraham, father, Abraham here, you know what Abraham did. And you know what Hebrews 11 talks about several things. But one of the things is that Abraham is commended for his faith that when God said, I want you to get up and go to a land that I'm giving to you, Abraham got up and went. And here's the incredible part of that story. He didn't know where he was going. He just got up and went. And I say this again. Here's the second of my four jokes. Like, I can imagine that conversation between Abraham and his wife. He's like, we're moving. She's like, great, where are we moving to? He's like, I don't know. When we get there and God tells me, I'll tell you. I mean, that's what, that's what Abraham is commended for. Another thing Abraham is commended for in Hebrews chapter 11 is that he had one son. At this point in the story, he had one son by the name of Isaac, who was the fulfillment of this promise of God. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And at that moment, when this story happened, he didn't have a great nation. He had one son. And then God says something crazy. He says, I want you to go and kill that son. Now, foreshadowing, we see that God allowed his one and only son to be killed. But Abraham didn't know that was coming. And so Abraham just says, okay. And he takes the one son, which was the promise, uh, the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him and his spouse, his wife. He says, let's go. And he takes Isaac and he takes some servants and they start walking towards the mountain. And they get to where they can see the mountain. And Abraham says to his servants, the boy and I are going to go. And we will return. He had enough faith that if I end up over there and I have to kill him and God doesn't do something, God's going to raise him back from the dead because he's the fulfillment of the promise. And Hebrews 11 Points to Abraham and says it was by faith that he did this. If you track through Hebrews 11, you see these incredible stories of faith. These incredible stories of people that chose to believe a greater reality that they couldn't always see with their eyes. The greater reality that if God said build a boat because it's going to rain and you don't know what a boat is and you don't know what rain is, you just say, I'll build it. The greater reality that says, I don't know where we're moving, but if God says go, I'm going. The greater reality that says, I think Isaac is the fulfillment, but if God says kill him, I'm going to kill him. The greater reality of the people of Israel, which is told in Hebrews 11, that they enter into the promised land and they come to a city named Jericho that has a wall circling the city to keep the people of Jericho in Jericho and the people outside of Jericho out of Jericho. And God says to Joshua, that city is yours. But here's the thing, with our eyes, the city doesn't look like it's ours because the wall's still standing. And the people are still in there, and we can't get in. And so here's the worst military strategy in the history of the world. God says, don't go and knock the wall down. Go and walk around the wall. And for six days, just walk around it one time. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it six times in silence. And on the seventh time, I want you to shout because God is giving you the city. Now, here's joke three of the four that I have. So this I'm running out here, okay? Like, if I'm in the army, which I'm not, thank God. If I'm in the army, and I don't mean I wouldn't serve. I'm, thankful, I'm thinking you're thankful I'm not in the army. That's what I'm saying. If I'm in the army on day two, when we've walked around the wall and the wall is still standing and the people in there are now making fun of us, that we're just walking around not doing anything, I'm thinking God has lost his mind. The or Joshua has lost his mind like this can't be the strategy to take the city on day four or five. I'm convinced this is a bad idea on day seven. When we start walking six times in silence, I'm thinking I'm, I'm just going to step out of line and just go do something else. This is a waste of my time. Time seven when we're supposed to celebrate because God has given us the city and the walls are still standing. I'm thinking this this is not the greater reality. This is a reality that we're going to lose this battle because in a minute they're going to stand on top of the wall and throw stuff at us and we're going to die. But the greater reality is that even though we can't see the victory sometimes, if God's promised it, it's coming. Right? Because faith is believing what we can't always see. And so Hebrews 11 just walks us through these incredible stories of faith, the people of Israel, Rahab. And I want you to look at this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Hebrews eleven thirty-two, 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It's a pretty incredible list of accomplishments assigned to a pretty incredible list of people that includes the son of a prostitute. He's not just the son of a prostitute. It includes Jephthah, a mighty warrior. See, if I choose not to focus on one reality, I'm able to focus on a greater reality. Because I don't know that it's the son of a prostitute who by faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises and and escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. But for sure, a mighty warrior could do those things. And I think our culture would love for each of us to wear the label of our worst mistakes. I think... There are people in our lives who would love to just put a sticker. Hello, my name is. And that name is the thing you wish nobody would ever call you. That you wish no one would ever refer to about who you are and who you were. And your greatest mistakes and your biggest moments of failure. But in our culture, we tend to make that the greater reality. We tend to make that the focal point of the identity Of the people that we come in contact with. And I'm afraid that we tend. When we look in the mirror. To see that. And claim that about ourselves. So here's just a couple of questions. To leave with you today. What if there are others looking for you. To lead them beyond their labels. Think about the people that rallied to Jephthah. Worthless fellows worthless fellows, I don't know why they were pushed out of their families. I don't know why they were pushed out of their tribes and their people. I don't know why they were wandering. But I know that there was a day when they just gathered together with a bunch of people like them, and they looked to Jephthah to lead them beyond their labels. What if there are others looking for you to lead them beyond their labels? Second question is, what if there's value in the worthless moments? What if there's value in the moments that you and I view as worthless? What if there's value in the people that you and I view as worthless? What if there's worth there? What if there's worth in worthless people? What if there's worth in worthless moments? And the third question is this. What if the pain of your past became your platform? What if the pain of your past became your platform? What if the parts of your story that you tried to suppress, that you tried to push down, that you tried to hide, that you tried to keep away from everyone. What if that was the platform that God would actually choose to use in you for the sake of others? What if the pain of your past was your platform? What if today you change the focus of your story Away from the but statement. But he was. But he did. But he thought. What if we changed the focus of your story. And that statement was no longer a limitation. But it was kind of the stepping off spot. It was the platform. It was the place that God would use to bring about redemption and reconciliation to you and to others in your life. Yours can be a story of redemption. It can be a story of victory. It can be a story of triumph out of tragedy. It can be a story of love out of unlovable situations. It can be the story of peace out of pain. It can be the story of healing out of hurt. And you get to decide which of the independent statements of your life are the greater reality. You get to decide. You and I get to decide which of these independent scenarios, these independent clauses, these independent statements, which of these things that if we were to diagram it, it's got its own line with a perfect spot on the diagram. Like we get to choose what's the focal point, what's on the main line, what's the part that we're going to focus on, that we're going to allow to be the platform of who we are and what we can accomplish through the help of God in our lives and in the lives of others. I don't know all of your stories. I don't. I wish I did. I wish you would tell me. I don't know them all. I know a few. I know mine. And and I feel like that there's some commonality in all of our stories and that we tend to get stuck. We tend to get stuck focusing on the thing that should be That could be an obstacle. When really it could just be a part of the details. Of this greater story. I mean think about our what if translation. If you rearrange the words. If you don't manipulate it at all. If you just take the words and rearrange them. Just to look at how you're going to focus on this sentence. Instead of saying the Jephthah was a mighty warrior. But There was this thing holding him back, but he had this part of his story he wasn't proud of. If you just rearrange that and you go, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, but he was a mighty warrior. It changes the focus. It changes the energy. It changes the context. It changes what is possible in the story. What do you need to rearrange in your story? What do you need to take the focus off of to put the focus on? In your story, what is it that God is illuminating in your life, and you keep pushing it down? You keep pushing it to the side. You go, "No, I don't want anybody to know that part of my story. I don't want anybody to know that part of my life. I, I don't want anything to to kind of keep. I don't want that to be an obstacle for me." What if God's raising it up so that it's a platform? What if God is raising it up so that there are others who feel worthless who can rally to you? say, you don't have a place to belong either? You don't have anybody that finds value in you either? Neither do I. You don't have anybody that sees potential in you? Neither do I. You're so ashamed of the great failures of your past and your mistakes? So am I. They come to you and you have the ability to lead them. To lead them out of Your pain and your story lead them towards these incredible truths, incredible reality, the greater reality. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of redemption and reconciliation. And I said on Easter Sunday, and I'll say it for the rest of my life, when we think the story's over... It's probably just beginning we've got to change the focus I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar I'm not going to ask you to stand this is just a moment with you and God just personal introspection just meditation on, on your life and God and who he is and what we know about him and the truths of his word Nobody looking around if you would just say Jeremy today I mean I I've got that kind of statement in my life. I've got this but statement that's an obstacle for me. It's a part that I push down, I suppress. It's a part of my past, it's a part of my story, it's a part of my pain. It's there and and I tend to focus on that. Would you just lift your hand? You can put it right back down. Thank you. Tons of hands. I'm telling you we're we're in the same place today. I want you to look at me. I've already changed the message this weekend. I'll change this moment for a second. I'm going to ask the band to sing, Whom Shall I Fear? Okay? No, You can come and pray if you want to. I'll ask the altar team just to be available. And I'm throwing a curveball to them, but I'll ask them to be available. If you want to come and pray, that's awesome. If you're not, you can just stand. I'm going to pray for us. There were so many hands that went up. I'm going to pray for us. And if you just say in this moment, like, I'm committing to change the focus of my story. I'm committing in this moment to change the focal point, the thing that I've been kind of distracted by, I've tried to suppress, I've tried to push it down. I'm going to change that focus and I'm going to focus on who I can be, what I can accomplish, what God might want to do through me. I'm going to change the focus towards that. And so as I sing now, I'm singing as an act of worship. I'm singing in advance of what God's going to do through me. I'm singing in advance not in just response I'm singing in advance to what God wants to do in my life in my story I'm singing in advance of all the people God's going to bring my way that I can use my story to help them find value I'm going to pray and then the band's going to sing I'll come back up and close this in just a moment but if you want to sing along you want to stand in declaration of saying God I promise today I commit today that I'm giving my story to you and what I've attempted to make my story I'm going to let you write my story I'm going to let you decide what's the focal point what's important so today we're going to worship just in response to that, in anticipation of that. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God that writes the stories, that you're a God that raises up people, that you're a God that when we see heartbreak and hurt and tragedy, you see the possibility for healing. When we see worthlessness, you see value in that. When we see pain, you can see the possibility for peace. God, when we see brokenness, you see restoration. And so God, today in this place, for all the hands that were raised, I pray right now that they would change the focus of their story towards the focus of potential, towards the focus of what can God do in and through me. And so God, in this moment, as we worship you, as we understand, there's nothing that I have to be afraid of because I'm in, I'm, I'm in your camp here. I'm on your team. I, I'm, I'm aligning myself with you. So, God, today, would you just allow us to put our hope and our trust in you, allow you to write our story, God, and find our value in you. God, let us not seek acceptance and love from other places, but God, let us first find it in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.